Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. What is religious liberty anyway? What are its origins? What are religious exemptions? What would a jurisprudence of religious liberty based on the idea of natural rights look like? What is distinctive about such an approach and what are some of its pluses and minuses? These are some of the questions addressed in the 2022 book, Religious Liberty and the American Founding, Natural Rights and the Original Meanings of the First Amendment Religion Clauses by Vincent Philip Munoz. The book explores the the fraught legal and philosophical terrain of religious freedom. It is a meticulous study of the founders' common concern for the protection of our inalienable right of religious free exercise and their surprisingly divergent views on how to navigate the relationships of privilege and control between church and state. Munoz examines the attitudes of the founding generation on these topics as reflected in the understudied area of constitution making between 1776 and 1791 in America at the state level. He argues that we have to go beyond the First Amendment's text to elaborate its meanings. We must, he contends, understand the intellectual and theological milieu of the time. Munoz provides a historical context of the creation of the establishment and free exercise clauses of the First Amendment and the intellectual underpinnings of their original meanings. He explicates in a thorough but reader-friendly manner what we can and cannot determine about the original meaning of the First Amendment's religion clauses. The book is a mixture of legal, intellectual, and political history in which we learn that the Bill of Rights was in many ways an afterthought designed by the Federalists to counter opposition to the Constitution by anti-Federalists. Indeed, Monial shows that many, if not most, of the individuals who drafted the First Amendment did not even think it was necessary. His detailed examination of the drafting record illuminates the Federalist lack of enthusiasm for amendments and says, the aim of many in the first Congress was to get amendments drafted, not to draft precise amendments. He concludes the book with a discussion of the impact of natural rights constructions of these clauses. Munoz contrasts fascinatingly, for example, his approach with those taken by recent Supreme Court justices, notably Samuel Alito, and argues that his novel church-state jurisprudence offers a way forward that could adjudicate First First Amendment church-state issues in a legal, fair, coherent, and importantly, more democratic fashion. The book is an outstanding guide to the many schools of thought on religious liberty in the United States, and in his argument for an inalienable natural rights understanding as the founder's most authoritative view, Munoz convincingly shows that competing accounts, for example, neutrality, accommodation, separation, non-endorsement, minimizing political division, and tradition do not capture the deepest understanding of the founder's thought. Munoz notes that his constructions correspond to no existing approach. They do not fall into what are usually either considered either the conservative or liberal positions on church-state matters. The aim of the book is to spur more robust conversations about whether we are inter- interpreting the founders correctly and what evidence is most relevant to develop the First Amendment religion clauses consistently with their original design. Let's hear from Professor Munoz himself. Hello, everyone. My name is Hope J. Lehman, and I am one of the hosts of the New Books Network. I'm talking today with Vincent Philip Munoz, author of the 2022 book, Religious Liberty and the American Founding, Natural Rights and the Original Meaning of the First Amendment Religion Clauses. Thank you for joining us today, Philip. It's a pleasure to be with you. 
Well, thank you for joining us. I I, I read your your book every word, and I it, it, it took a long time because it was so fascinating that I was basically under was covering your book with ink 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 from several pens, which I went through. Um, I'd like to start with the basic with the basics. What are the First Amendment religion clauses, and what are natural rights? Yeah, well, those are big questions. Uh, let me start actually just by thanking you for having me on the show. Uh, thank the listeners for uh, their time. Uh, and thank you for that wonderful introduction of the book. Um, I think you summarized the book better than I could. I need to, I'm going to transcribe that introduction and use it myself. It was really just a fantastically uh, fantastic summary. So, okay, you asked, uh, what, are, what are the religion clauses and what are natural rights? Um, well, the first part of that question is relatively easy. The, the First Amendment begins, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. Um, uh, technically, it's only one clause. Uh, the, my yeah. high school English teacher would tell me. But uh, in general, we, we talked about the establishment clause, um, uh, that the government cannot establish a religion, whatever that is. That's the establishment clause. And then the free exercise clause, um, individuals have a right to religious free exercise, whatever that is. Uh, so we have the establishment clause and free exercise clause. These are both part of the First Amendment. Originally, the First Amendment only restricted the national government, but for over 100 years, close to 150 years, we've understood um, at least a free the, through the by the 14th Amendment um, uh, that these provisions apply to the states as well. I misspoke a bit, a little bit, um, not over the last 150 years, uh, starting in the 1940s, mm. the free exercise clause and the establishment clause um, were applied against the states. So n right now, neither the federal government nor states can establish religion, neither the federal government or the states can uh, uh, prohibit the free exercise of religion. And what are natural rights? Well, what are natural rights? Well, the, that's a big <laughs> question, not easy to answer simply, but uh, let me try a simple answer. It, it, um, the basic idea is that uh, on account of our human nature, um, uh, certain things are due to us. Um, certain things are a matter of justice. Um, it's, it's wrong to, uh, we have a natural right to property. What does that mean? It simply means if, if uh, you own something, I can't take it from you. You own it. It would be wrong. It would be a natural injustice for me to take your um, your tomatoes or your app, pick apples off your apple tree uh, if you own the tree. And uh, so it's natural rights capture our basic understandings of right and wrong uh, and that there's some things that are right and wrong by nature, some liberties we have uh, that we ought not to be denied, uh, ways we ought not to be treated. Uh, freedoms we ought to be able to exercise on account of the types of being we are. The language we use to capture those ideas, it sounds very sophisticated, it's just very simple. Um, there are ways we shouldn't treat each other. And if you can connect those to uh, our human nature, we call them natural rights. Really, the important concept is um, that these exist prior to government. That is, government doesn't create natural rights, just governments come into existence to protect our natural rights, to safeguard them. And natural rights are, are a subset of natural law, or they grow out of, or, they're, or are, they, are they synonymous terms? 
I mean, these these are controversial ideas. Of course, not everyone even believes in natural rights uh, anymore. Mm. Um, uh, the founders' understanding is that uh, natural rights are part of the natural law. Again, what do we mean by the natural law? All we mean is right and wrong by nature. Mm. Um, maybe a, an example from our history is uh, would be helpful. Um, Abraham Lincoln in the Lincoln-Douglas debates said, you know, slavery is a monstrous injustice. Now, slavery was protected by the Constitution, by the law, but Lincoln said slavery is unjust, it is wrong. It is wrong because it violates the natural rights of the slave. There's no right in nature to own a slave. And so it's a standard of right and wrong by which we can judge the law, we can judge behavior. So slavery was legally protected, that it was positively allowed, I mean, allowed by the positive law, but it was against the natural, uh, against natural rights, not, and therefore against the natural law. Um, so it's just a way to talk about natural justice. Maybe that's the easiest way that there's a standard of justice that by which we can evaluate the law, um, and that the, a good law uh, reflects uh, natural rights in the natural law. Let me just also add. Um, maybe the best modern example of natural rights and natural law thinking is Martin Luther King's letter from the Birmingham jail. It's, it's really quite a beautiful letter. And uh, we're coming up to a Martin Luther King day. Um, uh, it is, I think, probably the, the most beautiful expression of natural rights and natural law thinking uh, of the last uh, 75 years. Well, that's a good example, because people that do know a little about natural law think, oh, that's just something that Catholic law professors are interested in, and they do know who Martin Luther King is. So that's that's a good, a good, a excellent example. Um, I, 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 oops, sorry. Um, in the book, you say that the genesis of the Bill of Rights as a whole and the Free Exercise Clause lies in the anti-federalist criticism of the proposed Constitution. That is, there wasn't this driving force to have, uh, except that was it was... I was surprised by that, that it was basically, oh, we have to we have to appease these pesky anti-federalists. Could you talk about the origins of that and, and why is that important to know? Yeah, good, good. OK, well, I mean, the way you're starting off uh, exactly the place where I'd like to start off with. So uh, let me step back for a second. So the, the founders believed um, in the ideas of natural rights and natural law. They believed that there's natural uh, justice and injustice. They that this was the argument behind the revolution. The founders said we have a natural right to throw off the king because he's being tyrannical. Mm. Um, uh, it's not that the king was doing things that were illegal under British law. I mean, arguably, he was doing some things that are illegal. But the founders said it's not just that he's being uh, not following his own laws that he has legislated. It's that he's being a tyrant mm. and that by nature, men have a right to throw off tyrannical governments. In this sense, the Declaration of Independence and the natural right of revolution, the Declaration of Independence is a natural law, a natural rights document. Okay, so then um, we throw off the king, we have a successful revolution, uh, we draft the Articles of Confederation, it doesn't really work very well, so we're drafting a new constitution. Uh, the constitution, of course, is drafted in Philadelphia uh, in secrecy, um, and then it's submitted to the states for ratification. Uh, the, con the Constitution was um, uh, not clearly going to be passed. Uh, there were sort of two parties at the time uh, surrounding the ratification of the Constitution. 
those in favor of ratification of the Constitution were known as the Federalists, and those who were against ratification were known as the Anti-Federalists. Uh, the Federalists, it's a long story, but the Federalists were a little bit more organized. Um, they had George Washington on their side, James Madison, Alexander Hamilton. Uh, and it looks like they're going to be able to ratify the Constitution, but very narrowly. The Anti-Federalists want to defeat the Constitution when they realize that they can't defeat the Constitution outright, that is, they can't deny ratification, the Anti-Federalists say, well, we need amendments to the Constitution. Now, the Anti-Federalist strategy here was to get a second constitutional convention. And at that second constitutional convention, they wanted to really start over and rewrite the Constitution. So they say, the Anti-Federalists say, look, uh, this Constitution that we're voting on is not perfect. We need amendments. And the Anti-Federalists, I'm sorry, the Federalists say, okay, I'll tell you what, uh, you guys support ratification, we'll promise to have amendments added to the Constitution. Hmm. And that's kind of the deal that gets the Constitution ratified. And it was, that, it's, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, no, the Federalists, that is those in favor of the Constitution, they didn't think the Constitution needed amendments. Hmm. Um, but they, they agreed to add amendments to get the support of the Anti-Federalists. So the Constitution is ratified, we have elections to the first Congress, and the Federalists dominate the first Congress. And then James Madison says, James Madison is a Federalist, he's a leading proponent of the Constitution, James Madison says to his Federalist Party buddies, hey, uh, we promised amendments, remember those amendments we promised? Mm -hmm. And his Federalist colleagues say, but we never thought they were necessary. We got the Constitution ratified, we have, we're we're busy setting up the government. We don't have time. We haven't even started yet. We shouldn't be changing the Constitution. Mm. Let's put it in operation. And James Madison said, no, we promised amendments. What Madison also understood is, look, the Anti-Federalists want a second constitutional convention. They want to um, they want to make substantial changes. If we draft amendments in Congress, we will control the amendment process. And then the states can ratify those amendments. Uh, that is, we'll deny the Anti-Federalists what they really want, which is a second constitutional convention. Uh, this is actually what happens. So it's a great irony of our history. The very men who said amendments were not necessary are the men who go about drafting the Bill of Rights, what becomes the Bill of Rights. Uh, why is this long? Sorry, I've given a very long answer. I apologize. No, that's fine. That's important. Why is this history important for our subject of the First Amendment? It's because the men who drafted the First Amendment, the language that becomes our First Amendment and the religion clauses, they didn't actually think a First Amendment was necessary. And they thought it was necessary to draft an amendment, but they didn't think the Constitution was imperfect, that it needed these uh, safeguards for religious liberty. And my argument is um, that there's a lack of precision on exactly what the First Amendment means because those who drafted it weren't concerned with answering any precise questions on what the limitations on new limitations on the government needed to be. They just didn't want to mess up the, the new constitution and they wanted to draft an amendment. They agreed to do it. They got it done. Uh, what exactly these amendments said, they weren't too precisely concerned with. And therefore, we have this text, which, to use a technical term, is, is underdetermined. Mm. Uh, they, everyone was against the national government for making an establishment of religion. 
they didn't need to say with precision what is an establishment of religion. All they needed to do was draft an amendment that said national government can't do it. Everyone was against the national government prohibiting the free exercise of religion. What exactly is the free exercise of religion? Federalists said, well, we don't we don't need to clarify that. We're just against the government prohibiting the free exercise of religion. Because they were everyone agreed with these general principles. Everyone accepted it. We got the First Amendment. We got a First Amendment without a precise meaning behind it. Yeah, I think one of the fascinating aspects of your book is how little how little contemporary evidence we have for what their thinking was. And also you make clear that the people that did draft them, as you've been saying, were did it very grudgingly and with with a lack of a notable lack of enthusiasm. And you also say that they what their their concern was basically we don't want to be redundant and we don't want it to be stylistically awkward, but that's not precision of what they meant. It's just that they wanted it to, to look okay and it didn't conflict with anything noticeably. Is that correct? Or Yeah, that's basically correct. Uh, one other thing is they didn't want to unnecessarily limit the powers of the national government. Mm. Um, that comes in with the establishment clause. I mean, part of my argument, it's not that we can't know nothing about what the original meaning of the First Amendment religion clauses are. We can know some things um, and they, they work careful in the words they chose. So I don't I don't mean to convey that they were indifferent uh, to the words they used. And in fact, quite the opposite. Um, they chose words that they believed would not fundamentally alter the Constitution. Um, but these words did not at the same time have a precise meaning. Maybe a little bit more context would be helpful here. Um, originalists, that is those who interpret the Constitution in light of its original meaning, um, most originalists today would say what, what ought to govern the courts and govern the construction of the Constitution is the original meaning of the terms when they were adopted. Part of my argument is, well, we can know something about the original meaning. We can't know a full or precise meaning behind the original meaning of the First Amendment. And therefore, we necessarily have to do some some creative or constructive work. We have to fill in the blanks that the founders didn't themselves fill in. I think the last the last third of your book is your is your proposal to do just that. Is that is that's, that that's correct? That's exactly right. Yeah. Well, another term that a term that they did not use that I believe probably came in well into maybe ours the last century, the twentieth century or the twenty first or the twentieth century. Anyway, what is what is meant by the term exemptions, and when did that come in as a term? Oh, okay. Well, let me. Um, they did talk about exemptions in general when we're talking about exemptions in the context of religious liberty. Let me use an example, actually, that will be helpful. And this is an example from the founding era. So Quakers, um, Quakers are pacifists. Uh, their pacifism is religiously inspired. So Quakers um, at the time, and I think still now, believe that they can't engage in warfare. And so do Quakers, on account of their religious belief, deserve an exemption from the military draft, uh, from serving the country in the armed forces? And this is a question that came up um, uh, in the first Congress and generally during the Revolutionary War. I mean, uh, what happened to Quakers that were drafted into the militia? Um, seven Quakers were marched up to George Washington, um, who was commander in chief at the time, uh, with their rifles tied to their backs because the Quakers wouldn't even carry their rifles. Mm. And so when we talk about exemptions, 
um, we're talking about do do religious believers have a right to be exempt from a law on account of their religious beliefs? Do Quakers not have to fight or not have to, if they're drafted, not have to fight, or can they be exempt from military service, even if other citizens have to serve in the armed forces? That's what we mean by uh, exemptions more generally. Now, it's not just connected to military service. Um, do uh, religious believers have a right to be exempt from drug laws, for example, if um, uh, they use uh, a, a, an illegal substance in their uh, religious rituals, the famous case from Oregon, for example. Okay, um, I, I was going to say in your in your book, I got the impression that you're not altogether unlike some uh, some conservative scholars. You you don't seem terribly wild about religious exemptions. Is that is that correct? And you and could you yes yes well that? this is this is a big a big topic and this is me. <laughs> um, I think what most people will find most interesting, probably most controversial about my book. Um, I argue that if we found, let me just back up a little bit. So I said that it's the original meaning of the First Amendment religion clauses is not clear. I think that's true. It's, it's not clear. And I, I try to give an explanation of how the founders could have come about drafting unclear text. Um, that's what we just talked about, about mm -hmm. the Federalists and Anti-Federalists. So then the question for us is, well, um, if we have the First Amendment, what do we do if the original meaning is not clear? Now, some people would simply say, well, we can, we should evolve the Constitution and we should just basically write whatever we think is best for the First Amendment. Um, we, we could do that, um, certainly. In practice, that empowers uh, a judicial elite um, to rewrite our Constitution. Um, whether we want to give the judicial elite that sort of power is, I think, certainly an open question. Um, it's really to be governed by a judicial elite and not by the Constitution if we do that. So, but that's a, a larger question of constitutional interpretation and what is the right way. Those who argue for the living Constitution say, uh, well, we don't want a Constitution that's dead or written by white men who were who slave owners and long ago passed away. But then who is going to rewrite the Constitution? Um, and I would especially ask those who are on the left side of the political aisle, do you mean to say that um, Justice Thomas and Justice Alito now can write the Constitution according to their moral views? Because that's what living constitutionalism would allow. Mm. Would say, if you, really, if you really believe in the method of living constitutionalism, it means those who are on the Supreme Court can write the Constitution as they think is morally best. And today that means Justice Alito, Justice Thomas, Justice Barrett, um, and the governing majority of five. Um, it's funny, I think, that most proponents of living constitutionalism only want living constitutionalism done by liberal justices. <laughs> but their opinions would justify their methodology, if they stay true to it, would say that no, um, we get to evolve the Constitution. The we is those who are in control of the court. Um, I think what that would mean for an evolving approach to human dignity, how Justice Alito might, might apply that to abortion. And I don't find many living constitutionalists want to extend their methodology to everyone. I'm not a living constitutionalist. 
Um, I think that the, the text ought to be followed and that the first place you start is with the original meaning of the text. But then I have a problem or originalists like me have a problem. What if the original meaning is not clear? That's my argument. The original meaning of free exercise, the original meaning of establishment is not crystal clear. What do we do then? I'd say one approach would say, well, we apply contemporary morality to that. I think that has real disadvantages. The other approach, and this is what I advance in my book, is to say, well, um, we know the governing philosophy of the Constitution. That was a natural rights philosophy. That's where we started. Um, it's easy to document this. In fact, my, the first third of my book attempts to document that natural rights governing philosophy did, in fact, um, guide the founders and the Constitution. Um, I don't do uh, what I'm about to say in the book, but it's also easy to say natural rights philosophy guided Abraham Lincoln. Uh, he tried to apply natural rights philosophy to the slavery controversy in the Lincoln-Douglas debates. Um, if we applied natural rights to the Constitution, we could use the founders' natural rights philosophy. And again, it's not so important that it's the founders' natural rights philosophy. It's a philosophy of natural justice. We could apply that philosophy to fill in the blanks to understand the original meaning of the Constitution. Uh, I think that's a consistent and coherent approach. If we do that, and I'm going to just make a big sweep, sweeping statement here, the natural right to religious free exercise does not include a right to be exempt from generally applicable laws. That is, the natural right to religious free exercise would not include a right for the Quakers to be exempt from military draft laws. Um, that's controversial because uh, most originalists, many conservatives, it used to be the liberal position too, I might add, believe that religious freedom means exemptions. I give an alternative account of religious freedom from the from natural rights philosophy that says the right to religious freedom does not include a right to be exempt from otherwise valid laws. That's where social conservatives would would take issue with your with your approach. Or, for example, uh, you famously kind of spar with Justice Alito on certain certain situations. I wonder could you could you provide us some instances of religious liberty cases maybe in recent years that you think were either wrongly decided or rightly decided, but for the wrong reasons. Yeah, so um, you're, you're right to say most social conservatives uh, are concerned or dislike the results that this natural rights philosophy produces. Um, I will say, I don't, I, I don't understand this to be my approach. Um, I understand this to be the founder's approach. Mm. Um, I try to make clear in the book that um, I'm trying to represent the founders philosophical understanding, a true understanding or an accurate understanding of, of our Constitution, that this is the founding philosophy. If we apply the that founding philosophy to the Constitution, these are the results we get. I may or may not like those results, but it's not my aim as a scholar is not to um, import my views into the Constitution, or my views into the founder's thought, and therefore into the Constitution. Um, my job as a scholar is to try to understand the Constitution, its philosophy and history, and then try to explain what I understand. Um, whether I like it or not is really indifferent to, to what I understand to be my role as a 
as a scholar. So um, I, we, we can refer to it as my approach since it's presented in my book. But when we say that, I, I hope the listener will say, well, this is how Professor Munoz understands the founders approach. It's really the founders approach. Mm. So if you don't like the approach, you can criticize the founders and, and not me. Um, most, I, I think it's fair to say most social conservatives disagree with, um, with my approach uh, and they, they think I get the philosophy or history wrong, or if I don't get it wrong, at least the results it produces are undesirable. Yes, I was, I was going to say some of, some of the cases, as I read it, for example, Locke versus Davy, was it in, in um, that you, could you explain that case a little bit? That's an example sure. that I was surprised by that because I thought, so, uh, to, well, you, I'll, you go ahead I'll, and I'll say why I objected. Let, <laughs> let me use the peyote case because okay. this is a good example. Um, okay. So this, this case dates back uh, to the 80s and it was decided by the Supreme Court in 1990. And the, the case is called Employment Division of Oregon versus Smith. Um, there are these two gentlemen, Alfred um, uh, Alfred Black and Galen Smith, I believe their names are, uh, Smith and Black, but the case is named for one of them, uh, Mr. Smith. So Mr. Smith ingested peyote uh, in Central Oregon, and he ingested peyote as part of a Native American church ritual. Peyote at the time was uh, an illegal substance. It's a hallucinogenic. It's not really a drug that's uh, often abused. Uh, I'm told it has some unpleasant side effects, but it was illegal. So uh, this fellow ingested an illegal drug. Uh, he was a drug counselor for the state of Oregon. Uh, he was drug tested. He tested positive for drugs. So he was fired, for his, uh, fired from his job as a drug counselor for testing positive for drugs. And he filed a federal lawsuit saying, well, but I was practicing my religion and the free exercise clause, the First Amendment protects the free exercise of religion. Therefore, it's not that he said I shouldn't be fired. Uh, I deserve unemployment compensation, uh, which he was also denied by the state of Oregon. That's why it's Employment Division of Oregon versus Smith. Hmm. The court says, well, could we make the, could we criminalize um, peyote use, even if it's done for religious reasons? Does the First Amendment protect, provide a right for individuals like Mr. Smith to do something otherwise illegal while pursuing uh, their religion. And the Supreme Court famously in 1990 said, no, the First Amendment does not provide a, such a right. Uh, the decision was widely criticized. Uh, it overturned um, in practice a leading precedent, which dated from the 1960s. Uh, the leading precedent said the First Amendment does provide exemptions from otherwise valid but religiously burdensome laws. That is, it provides exemptions for religious believers. Um, since 1990, most social conservatives have uh, criticized the Supreme Court decision. Um, I would say in 1990, everyone criticized it, really. Um, what is ironic or hard for some conservatives to understand is it was Justice Scalia who wrote the anti-exemption Smith decision in 1990. Okay, let me fast forward to today. Um, Justice Alito uh, and Justice Gorsuch and Justice Thomas have said that the Smith decision from 1990 should be overturned. Um, Justice Alito wrote a lengthy opinion in 2021 explaining why he thought it should be overturned. And the crux of his argument was that the text of the First Amendment 
at least interpreted uh, strictly, um, would counsel exemptions. And he cited a scholar, Michael McConnell, uh, probably the most senior church-state scholar, especially among conservatives, who has argued that the original meaning of the First Amendment provides exemptions. Um, in his opinion, Justice Alito cited, he said, well, some scholars disagree with this, um, not many, but some, uh, and he, he wrote at length to disagree with those scholars. Uh, that scholar is me. Uh, <laughs> oh, really? Just, yeah. Justice Alito and I have, uh, have a dispute <laughs> what the original meaning uh, of the free exercise clause is. Justice Alito says it's exemptions. I say it's, it's not exemptions. Um, I hope that's, <laughs> sorry, that's a lot, a lot. I hope the listener is following. I, I realize I'm saying a lot and my answers are, are long. No, that's, that's very helpful. I, I wanted to say uh, you referred to a, a, a case in the 1960s. It was that Sherbert versus Werner. Sherbert versus Werner is a 1963 case. Let me just give one other example. Mm. Uh, just, I, I, I'm not sure if I'm being very clear and I want the listener to be able to understand. Um, let me use a famous case from the 70s. Uh, it's called Wisconsin v. Yoder. It's from the early 70s. It, it involves uh, the Amish. Um, in the 1970s, uh, Wisconsin had a mandatory school attendance law. So you had to send your kids to school. You could send them to a private school or public school, but you had to send your kids to school. There's no homeschooling option. Uh, and you had to send your kids to school until they're 16. The Amish um, traditionally pulled their kids out of school, formal education, after eighth grade, so about 13 or 14. And the superintendent of public schools um, started going after the Amish. In fact, he was fining the parents uh, every day their kids were not in school um, because they were not complying with state law. State law said you had to send your kid to school till you're 16. The Amish stopped sending their kids to school, formal school, until about the age of at, at 14. Um, so the case gets all the way to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court, I can't remember if it's 1971 or 1972, in a case called Yoder, um, rules in favor of the Amish. That is, the Amish have a right under the First Amendment to, to be exempt from this mandatory school attendance law, uh, because the Amish had religious reasons for not sending their kids to school. This is the, the exemption approach. This is the approach that Justice Scalia favors and scholars like Michael McConnell, um, you could say, you know, the, they're out to save the Amish. Um, I guess I'm sort of the bad guy in saying <laughs> that the Amish don't have a right actually to be exempt from these schools and the Quakers don't have a right to be exempt from the draft and um, the Native American church practitioners don't have a right to ingest peyote if these are otherwise against the law. That the First mm -hmm. Amendment was not designed or the First Amendment's philosophy does not provide a right to be exempt from otherwise valid laws. Yes, I think that would upset conservatives because so many of the recent cases protecting people are based on religious exemptions, right? I mean, Masterpiece. Masterpiece Cake Shop, and you see this today um, in non-discrimination law, right? The Masterpiece Cake Shop is the cake maker who didn't want to design a wedding cake for a, a same-sex wedding ceremony or wedding celebration. Um, and that case wasn't resolved on exemptions quite, I mean, they, it's a little bit complicated. The Supreme Court said that the state of Colorado, Colorado acted with animus towards mm. the cake maker, which, which is probably true, it seems. Um, 
But in general, Justice Alito would say a cake maker has a right to be exempt from this non-discrimination law, whereas my approach would say the cake maker doesn't have a right to be exempt. Um, let me just put on the hat of the social conservative for a moment, and the social conservative would say, well, um, isn't the free exercise clause meant to protect religious freedom mm. and these laws burden religious freedom or the religious beliefs of these individuals and their practices? How can it not protect them? I mean, I think Michael McConnell is sort of dumbfounded or Justice Alito, like what, what, what is the free exercise clause doing if it doesn't provide exemptions? Uh, that they understand the right of religious liberty to be a right to be exempt from the law. And so they can't figure out why I'm saying what I'm saying. Um, I think that's <laughs> I think that's an accurate portrayal of those who disagree with me. Um, they they really find the approach I'm offering to be so anemic and empty as to not do what they understand the Constitution is supposed to be doing. Yes, I underline that part in the book, the word anemic, because so, sometimes I, I thought I could see. With all respect to, to your wonderful book, sometimes I could see some of some justice in their in their in their displeasure. Yeah. <laughs> because for for example, as I mentioned, the Lockby Davy case from 2004 in, in Washington State, that was a case with a where it was a scholarship program and they there was a provision that it specifically excluded the study of theology, that it singled out theology. And, and in your book, you seem to say, well, that was okay because there's no, I mean, not okay. Well, why don't you explain it all? I just, I was just surprised because I thought, well, that seemed to me just rank discrimination just on its face. But you argued, no, it's not that the state of Washington has that right. Or, or am, I, am I misreading you? Yeah, no, 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 you're right. So that this is another case. It kind of gets to the same issue, a slightly different issue, but um, uh, the state of Washington had a scholarship um, I think it still does, I'm not sure, called the Promise Scholarship. And um, this was for low-income kids um, who, I believe, you had to be um, low-income and go to any accredited college in the state of Washington. It was a small scholarship, $1,000 a year or something like that. And this kid, uh, Joshua Davey, won the scholarship, and he went to, I think, this Northwest College, which is a Bible college. And... Um, there was a provision in the law that said you can you can go to any accredited college and you can study anything you want except theology um so they there's an ex you don't get the scholarship if you major in theology now washington state had this um provision in its law to comply with the washington state constitution washington state constitution has a blaine amendment um these are hmm. common in many state constitutions and they, they're they really nasty <laughs> amendments, to be honest. I mean, they're mm -hmm. anti-Catholic in origin. And they basically say no state money can follow, uh, can go to sectarian institutions. That was code for no state money can fund Catholic institutions. Uh, the public schools at the time in the, the late 19th century were basically Protestant. So um, Washington state still has this constitutional provision in the state constitution, and they operationalized it uh, in this, you know, 20th century scholarship, uh, late 20th century scholarship provision uh, by saying, um, look, you can get the scholarship, you can go to a religious school, a religious college, you just can't major in theology. Well, this kid declared a major in theology and he lost his scholarship mm. and gets all the way to the Supreme Court. Uh, and the question of the Supreme Court is, can Washington effectively discriminate against theology or religious students. Mm. 
Um, and it's a 7-2 decision, and the Supreme Court says it can. Justice mm. Scalia this time dissented. And Justice Scalia said discrimination against religion, singling out uh, uh, some on account of their religious status, um, it violates the free exercise clause. And I, I, I too say, no, that doesn't, that doesn't violate the free exercise clause. I mean, if it violates anything, it violates the equal protection clause. But my understanding of the free exercise clause is it's not a non-discrimination provision. Uh, that's what free, that's what Scalia would say. You can't discriminate against religion. There is a non-discrimination provision in the Constitution. That's the equal protection clause. I don't try to interpret the equal protection clause. But if it if this Washington State scholarship law violates anything, it's the equal protection clause, not free exercise clause. I imagine oh. I imagine the listener is thinking, well, what does Professor Munoz think the free exercise clause protects then? Yes, well, actually, <laughs> yeah. uh, this listener does actually, <laughs> but 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 um, yes, would you elaborate on that? Then what, for example, in your book, you have one of the most interesting aspects is that you what's what's really rich about it is it does complicate things and it makes you make clear that it's not you have to. Um, think much more deeply that what seem on their face to be wins for religious freedom are not necessarily that. And you, I think when, for one case was the Church of Lukimi Bapalu versus City of Hialeah, which mm -hmm. in which which there seemed to be, well, you could would you discuss that case because that seemed to be, to my reaction was the opposite in this case. I felt like I was sided with the city. I thought if the city can't outlaw something that is clearly unhealthy or cruel, that what can it do? So yeah, yeah, good, good. Okay, so let me let me step back and say, okay, I've said um, a lot about what the free exercise clause does not pr protect, but what does it do? And so I have um, I have a different understanding. Sorry, I, I know you can't see me. I'm just going to stand here um, so I can be a little bit more comfortable. Um, my understanding is that the um, and this is going to bring us back to the idea of natural rights. When the founders talked about religious freedom, they said it was an inalienable natural right. And so I try to think through what did they mean by it is uh, just call a right an inalienable natural right. Um, and this is a, a considerable part of my book is chapters two, three, uh, two, three, and somewhat four. Um, what let me see if I can explain it simply. The founders held that certain rights were such a nature that we cannot give government jurisdiction. We cannot give government authority over those rights. Mm. Let me use an example. Um, the right of revolution. I mentioned this before. The founders justified the American Revolution against the king. It wasn't a legal revolution, right? That's a nonsensical term. How can a revolution ever be legal? But they said we have a natural right to overthrow tyrannical government uh, and to, to assume uh, governing ourselves. Um, it's a natural right and it's an inalienable right. It's inalienable because we don't alienate that right. That is, we don't give government power to safeguard that right. It's nonsensical to say government can safeguard your right to revolution. Is that relatively clear? Does that make sense to you? Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, so there are two types of natural rights. There are alienable natural rights and inalienable natural rights. Mm. 
alienable natural rights are those rights we turn over to the government to protect. So the right to property is a alienable natural right. So the, you could say within the right to property is the right to make contracts, right? Um, you want to sell something, I want to buy something, we have an agreement. Um, now what should happen is you know we hand we shake our hands and um you sell me whatever the the whatever you produce let's say the t-shirts and i buy the t-shirts and you produce them and i pay you for them and and everyone's happy um we don't need government to tell us we can do that but we create when we create government to protect our right to contract the government specifies certain rules when do you have a binding contract well, when you sign a piece of an official piece of paper, you know, and the government can say if it has this stamp or is notarized and you sign it, then there's a binding contract. But if you just have a handshake agreement, that's not a binding contract. Uh, the way I explain this to my students, by the way, is I ask them, um, when are you dating? Turns out students, uh, men and women often have different understandings of when they're dating exclusively. Um, <laughs> Uh, it's, uh, <laughs> there's a, uh, well, the same thing in business. When do you have an agreement? In fact, lots of disagreements, lots of lawsuits occur because it's not clear when there was an actual agreement. So we actually give government power to specify, to protect our right to contract by making rules for this is when you do and do not have a binding contract. So contract law is a way that government protects our alienable natural right to property, to use our property and to trade our property. Okay, is that relatively clear? Yes. Okay, well then what's an inalienable natural right? Well, it's a natural right, just like property is a natural right, but inalienable rights are rights we do not give government authority over to regulate or to protect. When the founders said religious free exercise is an inalienable natural right, what they're saying is we don't give government authority to specify how you fulfill your religious obligations. Again, let me go back to the example from contract law. Property rights, the right to make contracts is an alienable natural right. We give government to specify, government power to specify, this is when you have a binding contract. Religious free exercise is an inalienable natural right. We don't give government authority to specify when you have um, fulfilled your binding religious obligations. Inalienable natural rights are jurisdictional in nature. They're about what power we give to government and what power we don't give to government. When we say a right is inalienable, it means we don't give government that power. We don't give government power over the free exercise of religion that has a precise meaning. What does it mean? It means government can't make rules over what constitutes proper worship. It mm. means government can't punish us for the way we worship. Government can't say you must worship on Saturday or you may not worship on Saturday. Government can't issue uh, preaching licenses. We issue all sorts of licenses, the government does. Uh, cosmetology licenses, law licenses, educational licenses, right? To be a, uh, a grade school teacher, you have to have an education license mm. right? to, to practice medicine. You have to have a uh, medical license from the state. But to preach, right, 
to be a minister of the word, you don't have to have a preaching license. Well, why not? Why can't government issue preaching licenses? Look, even to get married, you have to get a marriage license. It's because we never gave government power over the free exercise of religion. Government can't specify who is or who is not a preacher. So inalienable natural rights are jurisdictional. It, what, what it means is there's some things government can't do. This is when we talk about limited government, this is what we mean. There's certain limits on government's authority. So the free exercise of religion, at least in this natural rights framework I'm trying to explain, is that what the founder said is there are some things government can't do. Government can't take direct jurisdiction over religious exercises. What that translates into is very narrow but specific prohibitions. Government can't criminalize certain religious practices as religious practices. Government can't regulate religious ministers as religious ministers. Um, So government can't say you cannot, government is prohibitive from making laws about proper worship. It's a huge limitation on governmental authority at least from uh, in a historical perspective. Government can't say what the true religion is, right? So you mentioned this case, the city of Hialeah. It's a case from uh, Florida. This is a, a town in Florida in the city, of Hi- the city of Hialeah trying to outlaw the Santeria religion. They wanted to prohibit the ritualistic sacrifice of animals what they're trying to do in practice was to prohibit Santeria. Hmm. And the Supreme Court decided 9-0 that this law was unconstitutional. I think that was the correct decision because government has no power to outlaw religious exercises as qua-religious exercises. That's what the city was trying to do. Government lacks authority to do that because we never gave it such authority. So the free exercise of religion, now to finally answer the question, the the right of religious free exercise is a limitation on government power. There's there's a certain type of legislation government can't pass. It can't pass laws directly on religious exercises as such. Oh, can I interrupt you, Philip? I was going to say in in your book that you, 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 you discourse fascinatingly and importantly on that phrase, that very phrase, as such. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if you could explain why, is that something of your own or is that is that just part of the jurisprudence scholarship? Well, no, I mean, it's just to specify that um, what the city of Florida in Florida could have done, it could have passed an animal cruelty law mm-hmm. saying you can't teach, treat animals cruel, cruelly, right? What it can't do is say you can't sac- sacrifice, you what it can't do is pass a law that says you may not sacrifice an animal in a religious ritual. Mm. When you specify a religious ritual, you are making a law on religious exercises as such, mm. right? It's, it, it's, you, government cannot target religious exercises. Right? That's what's prohibited. Have now, there been some cases in, in the, in the pandemic where, where, governments under the guise of public health have targeted religious practices as such? Yeah, there. these are all um, done through regulations. Um, there's a case um, 
in the state of Washington or a, an ordinance. Um, I'm from Seattle. That's how I knew about it. Governor Inslee actually issued a regulation for the distribution of communion. This is during the COVID pandemic. This is how you distribute communion. Um, and <laughs> government could could pass general laws about how you distribute food, right? They can regulate the, re the restaurant industry um, in a pandemic or more generally. But government lacks power to specify how communion, that is how religious exercises, must be organized. Government just doesn't have that power. Government can make general laws that apply to religious entities, but it can't make specific laws targeting those religious exercises that religious ent entities do. So it's the difference between direct laws that directly target religious exercises as opposed to general laws that government has the competence to make that impact religious believers. Well, you argue in the book that the speaking of what the government can or cannot do, you say that the government, the First Amendment does not mandate neutrality towards religion, which is which seems to be more and more what was argued in the 20th century by liberals, I believe, and that, but you, what are, who were the proponents of neutrality and what, what exactly is deemed to be an impermissible endorsement of religion? You mentioned Senator Day O'Connor having this concept of endorsement. Sure. So this would move us from free exercise more to establishment. Hmm. Um, let me just make, uh, let's see. Um, I just want to make sure the listeners understand. So what I, I understand free exercise to be a jurisdictional limit on what government can do. The, the, the categories of laws it can make. Um, whereas uh, individuals like Justice Alito and Justice McConnell say, no, free exercise is not about the categories of governmental power, but rather about how laws are applied to specific individuals. And my response here is, well, if government can pass a general law, it can apply that law to individuals, whether they're religious or not. So again, let's go back to the, um, the, the cases I mentioned before, Quakers in the military and um, uh, the Amish and uh, mandatory school attendance laws. Clearly, the government has the power to pass a law uh, drafting people for military service. Clearly, government has the power to, to tell its citizens, you must go to school. If it can do that, for all citizens, it can do it for religious citizens. Mm -hmm. I, I want to make clear that government can make exemptions. It can have a conscientious exemptor provision and say, look, we have the we have the power to draft anyone, but we're not going to draft certain types of people, including religious pacifists. I'm not saying exemptions are unconstitutional. I'm just saying they're not required by the Constitution. Mm -hmm. I say that because I have a jurisdictional con conception of what free exercise is. So, well, um, I want to go back to the anemic question. <laughs> the social conservatives tend to say, but this won't protect individuals uh, from the application of otherwise valid laws. And the answer is yes, that's correct. If the law is good enough to be passed, it, the law is good enough to be applied to everyone. There's no right to an exemption. But that doesn't mean free exercise is um, an empty set. 
um, free exercise prohibits laws from it prohibits the government from targeting religious exercises directly. Um, that might seem insufficient for you, but that is what the natural right of free exercise is. Okay, I, I hope that clarifies things for folks. I, I think that's helpful. I, I wonder if one thing that struck me is that uh, you also talk about the founders were concerned with being compelled to have to to practice certain religions because many of them were were. Quakers and so forth, and and but I wonder in in how does the jurisprudence regard new phenomenon like mindfulness in the workplace and that kind of thing? Because sometimes things that seem quasi quasi religious that you're told, oh well, we're all going to meditate on this in a group and so forth. I just wonder is is that is that something's come up in the jurisprudence lately or? Well, here's the problem with the exemptions, right? If um, if. Um, if, as those who disagree with me uh, say, look, any religiously motivated behavior should be eligible for an exemption from an otherwise valid law, um, then the question is, well, doesn't that mean any practice? I mean, anyone can say, well, I, I, I want to have an abortion because of my religious beliefs. I want to, um, you know, not work on Wednesdays, Thursdays, and Fridays because of my religious beliefs. I want to do anything can be claimed to be religiously motivated. Um, if you really push it, doesn't the exemption approach to free exercise mean anyone could make a claim about anything mm -hmm. and say, well, um, this is my religion and therefore I'm exempt from the law. Now, the response will be something like the following. Well, um, no, we can distinguish sincere claims from insincere claims. Well, maybe, but that means that government is actually going to have to decide on um, uh, you are sincere in your beliefs or you are not, or this religious belief, this alleged practice is an authentic religious practice and this, this religious practice is not. Um, there are real problems with making such determinations on an individual case by case basis. Um, I think it's better, um, more true to the natural rights philosophy to say government has certain things within its competence and there are certain things outside of the competence. That is regulating religious exercises as such are outside of government's competence. And we can evaluate laws by, look for the, we don't have to evaluate the, the individual Quakers conscientious beliefs. We can just evaluate, okay, does this, does the government have a right to pass a draft? If it does, the law is valid. So I, I think there are real problems with the exemption approach that the proponents of exemptions don't forthrightly admit or recognize. Hmm. Well, now that we've um, examined the conservative view, let's turn to the your critique of the left. And I, but another strength of your book is that it's very balanced and very fair that you say, Okay, this is my. These are my issues with McConnell. This is these are my issues with the whole exceptional jurisprudence. But now let's talk about the um, the separate the strict separationist view and what what the difficulties are with that. Yeah, yeah, good. So uh, yeah, when you when you say my book is fair, I think uh, the re the listener should realize what that means as I criticize everyone equally. Um, <laughs> so yes, so. Um, you could say many social conservatives have been worried about laws as applied to have a negative impact on religious individuals. And my argument is that, look, how the law is applied is not the province of the First Amendment. 
Liberals say they're worried about laws as applied to benefit religion. And my response to them is the same. It's basically, well, how the, the effect of the law is no bearing on the law's constitutionality. Meaning mm -hmm. if the law is constitutional, that is it's advancing a legitimate purpose that government has the power to advance, um, that it incidentally benefits religious people is not a measure of its constitutionality. Liberals want to say laws can't benefit religious believers. Conservatives want to say laws can't inhibit religious believers. My approach is to say, not, let's not look at the effects of the law. Let's look at whether the governing agency, you know, the state or federal legislature has authority to pass the law. <laughs> That's what I mean by a jurisdictional approach. If they have the authority to pass a law. So let's go back to the scholarship case. Let's say the government sets up a, a system of school vouchers and that they say anyone can uh, receive a $5,000 voucher and they can use it to go to any accredited school in the state. And let's say that in practice, when this law is applied, it will benefit all sorts of Catholic schools. Um, the, the traditional liberal approach known as separationism would be a law is unconstitutional if it has the effect of advancing religion. Mm and direct taxpayer money that goes to schools even via the parents was thought to advance religion and therefore unconstitutional according to separationism i'd say no that's that's incorrect that's not a proper understanding of the natural rights philosophy if the state is doing something legitimate funding education then the effects of the law have no bearing on its constitutionality that it incidentally benefits catholic schools or religious schools in general Look, the people don't have to pass the law, but if they do pass the law, it's not unconstitutional for this, these funds to go to Catholic schools or whatever religious schools. Um, the idea that the law must be neutral in its effect, I think, is not good constitutional doctrine. Uh, and that's uh, that that can't. And to be just speak candidly, that was doctrine that was made up in the 1940s to prohibit Catholic schools from receiving government funds. There really is an anti-Catholic animus, and if you dig closely into this history, and then it was expanded in a way to provide um, to require constitutionally required disabilities on religious groups in general receiving governmental funds. Um, I'm not saying you have to fund the religious schools. I'm just saying uh, it's not unconstitutional. So yes, you make, you make the point in the book very well that they didn't they didn't have any problem. Many of the founders had, had no problem whatsoever with fund. They didn't see establishment having anything to do with money. And, and you make you give a, a wonderful case in the book of Patrick Henry in Virginia and how different he was from Thomas Jefferson and James Madison on that on points like that. And I, I just want to emphasize that the book so far, it might. I want to assure you, it's not dry at all. There are personalities and lively personalities, and are and a lot of the the um, machinations behind the scenes. It's really very dramatic. It's 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 quite fascinating of the person of the of the people involved. And yeah, yeah, I, you know, we've been speaking. I I, I fear this is my responsibility. Speaking very abstractly uh, and philosophically, I, I you know I try to make the book as readable and as uh, 
grounded and concrete and historical as possible. So I appreciate you mentioning this. It is because when I, I, I and it, it elicits strong feelings. I know that my copy I write in the, in certain passages. No, 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 no. I don't agree with this. <laughs> so so it doesn't. It, it isn't. It isn't dry at all. It's it's quite quite compelling. And at this point, I just want to remind listeners that we were talking today with Vincent Philip Munoz about his book Religious Liberties, Religious Liberty and the American Founding, Natural Rights, and the Original Meanings of the First Amendment Religion Clauses. And I wonder if you could discuss a little bit about that, that Patrick Henry issue, because it, it is interesting about the, the again, the personalities and what how they how they differed and, and uh, about education, for example, and the fact that education yeah. was seen as value. And so individuals like Patrick Henry, this is, you know, give me liberty or give me death, Patrick Henry and mm-hmm. George Washington, um, they didn't think um, government funding re- religious education was constitutionally problematic. And in fact, you know, George Washington in his farewell address says that uh, religion is indispensable to Republican government. And let me let me try to explain this sentiment. Um, uh, Washington uh, and, and the founders more generally thought um, we're going to be a self-governing people. The people are going to make the law. Um, the law is going to allow the people to live basically as they wish. Um, that means uh, we need to have a moral people, a moral people who, the, so the people don't interfere with other people's rights, and a moral people so they'll elect um, leaders of virtue for the representatives. Um, how do we cultivate m- morality and uh, the moral sense of the people? Well, through education, uh, and especially through religious education. So it's, George Washington thought it's not problematic to encourage uh, the people to be religious um, uh, because you're encouraging civic character, uh, Republican character or democratic character. Um, So now that doesn't mean you should be sectarian. You shouldn't pick and choose. I mean, Washington was famous for his non-sectarianism. Um, but if you set aside land grants, for example, as in the Northwest Ordinance that sets aside land for um, education and church buildings, that would be okay, according to George Washington, even if it benefits religion. Well, the religious character of the people benefits the government. It benefits the common good because religious people are more likely to respect the rights of their fellow citizens. Uh, at least that's the reasoning behind the approach. So, um, you know, a lot of modern day strict separationism to go back to establishment clause, I I think it's really opposed to the founders natural rights vision, the the founders natural rights vision is far more democratic uh, than we would imagine. Hmm. Um, It it allows both laws that burden religion individuals, I'm sorry, burden religious individuals, and it laws, it allows laws that have the effect of benefiting religions. the founders natural rights approach really only asks is is this a is this piece of legislation a proper subject for government to be legislating on is it within government's uh, jurisdiction and competence if it is then again to repeat the effects of the law can either benefit or inhibit religion um what what the natural right of religious liberty prohibits is government from legislating on religious exercises directly I think you make very clear in the book that Patrick Henry argued 
so much that it was not necessarily religious education, but religion provided by the, I mean, education provided by the religious. That's right. That's exactly right. So I think that was, and he was saying that it would, and also in that day, there were not an extensive network of public schools. There were not public schools. So that's, that's exactly right. So most education was done through, through the churches. And, and today this might be, you know, AA programs or school vouchers. So it still could be education or all sorts of government services that, um, you know, religion helps provide. Um, the founders' natural rights approach would say, you know, you don't have to exclude religious social service providers. Uh, if the religious groups can uh, qualify to, you know, administer a government grant for for alcohol treatment or drug treatment or for adoption services, you know, if the religious group qualifies just the same as any other uh, group would qualify, then the money can go to the religious group. Um, that so the founders approach again it's far more democratic it doesn't it doesn't include special benefits for religion and it doesn't impose special disabilities on religion it allows the people to pass general legislation that can both harm or frustrate religious believers um you know so it allows us to legislate really as we see fit um and you know we don't always like the effects of democracy, but the founders were actually were far more democratic than than the court has been in the twentieth and early twenty first century. Yes, I think one of the great strengths of your book is that you examine the states at that time, and you make the point that this is a really untapped resource of scholarship. That they were not they weren't ideologues; they were just pragmatic people that were trying to get things done in their states and and and. That, and they differed in, in the respect of how they regard religion's role in that. Yes, and there are some real differences. Um, you know, they're, they're, where they agreed, though, was on this natural rights understanding. And that's, uh, you know, the listener might say, well, why, why do you say we should start with natural rights? And here is because that is the underlying philosophy of the, of the Constitution. Um, mm -hmm. Founders understood to be creating a natural rights republic and the constitution they created is to protect our natural rights. So while it is true to go back to where we began with that there, that the first amendment text may be underdetermined, uh, to determine that text or construct that text, I think it makes philosophical and historical sense to, to turn to the natural rights understanding because that is the understanding that um, really lies at the foundation of the Republic. Let me say one more word here. Um, it's not just that that's our historical understanding, it's that there are very good arguments defending the idea of a natural right to religious freedom. Um, and I try to provide those arguments, um, arguments from reason and from revelation, from secular reasoning, from natural theology, and from Christianity, um, that all lead to the conclusion that we have a natural right to religious liberty. I, I actually, we still believe this today, we believe it for good reason. Um, people do have a right to, to worship according to conscience and that government shouldn't punish people for how they worship or how they don't worship. Um, that's not just a commitment we have. It's, a, it's not just an article of faith, historical or revealed. It's an article of reason. It's an article of justice that we can understand and defend today. So it's not just that this natural rights approach is our approach, our American approach. It's really an approach defended I try to defend and present in terms of natural justice. Well, I think you effectively employ James, your, your portrayal of James Madison is really very moving of him. He just comes across as an extremely admirable, pioneering 
tolerant person and 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 just in terms of his power of thought and his, his power of writing you you you, you it's it, that that's one of the i was just impressed by that and uh, oh, I'm you sorry. Know, thank you thank you for saying that that you have actually have no idea how important that is to me what you just said because i think um if, if no one has asked me this question but if someone were to ask me um you know what do you professor munoz think the lasting contribution of this book will be um I think the most interesting thing that I've articulated is actually uh, just a few pages explaining James Madison's natural theology. Uh, <laughs> those are the passages you just referred to. And, um, you know, I just don't think that had been done so clearly before that James Madison offers philosophical reasons to defend the natural right of religious liberty. And um, I, those reasons, I think, are compelling. And it, it, it um, um, pleases me immensely to, to note that those passages caught your attention. Oh, definitely. I was, I just, I, I admire him so much more. I know more, so much more about him as a result of your book. And also on, on the reverse side, it was interesting to learn that one of the fascinating facts, that, one of the facts that I learned in your book is that Thomas Jefferson is often cited on matters of church and state, but you say, you point out Jefferson had nothing, nothing to do with the drafting of the First Amendment, which I found really, and yet he's often cited based on maybe one or two lines and letters he wrote. Oops. And I'll, I'll, I'll just conclude with that question, so. Yeah, I know you're absolutely right. I mean, this is, it, it, the Jefferson's authority in constitutional jurisprudence comes from a 1947 case called Everson versus Board of Education. This was the original wall of separation case. Um, and they cite Jefferson and they use this phrase, a wall of separation. Jefferson wrote this letter in, um, I think 1801 or 1802 to the, Dan to the Danbury Baptist Association. And the Supreme Court says, they just say it, there's, it's not actually true, but they say it, that um, the, the First Amendment had the same meaning as Jefferson's Virginia statute, which he wrote in the 1780s in Virginia. And that meaning is encapsulated by this phrase, a wall of separation of church and state. It's just not true. Um, Jefferson had nothing to do with the drafting of the First Amendment. The First Amendment did not simply repeat what was stated in the Virginia Statute for Religious Freedom. Um, and the, the Establishment Clause was not designed to uh, erect a wall of separation between church and state. It, it's, um, I mean, <laughs> sort of mind boggling that the Supreme Court thought it could get away with such bad history. <laughs> but they were just making things up, candidly. Mm -hmm. uh, um, they you make that really point about John, John Paul Stevens in your book comes across as making things up. <laughs> yeah, John Paul Stevens. I mean, I don't know. I think he I think these are just intellectual mistakes he makes. Mm -hmm. he, he just make but he makes some historical mistakes. And mm -hmm. it's because um, either the I think the 1947 court was really literally just making things up. I mm -hmm. think Justice Stevens was just making intellectual mistakes because the, he gets the history wrong. Part mm -hmm. of what this book is trying to do is um, set forth the history. Um, you know, so people might not agree with my natural rights philosophy, or they might think I misinterpret the founders' natural rights philosophy. I do think those um, readers interested in history will, I, I think, still gain uh, something by reading the book's um, historical account and, and, the, and the founders' understanding and the founders' philosophy. Um, I, I think the, the first uh, third of the book, um, it, it, I, I've been pleased that even those who disagree with me uh, think I explain the founders governing natural rights philosophy correctly, historically accurately. I, um, so that, that's been- well, And certainly taking, taking it out of, of 
the con congressional halls and into the states and what was happening across the country at that, that time. And well, Philip, I've taken up a lot of your time and I'd like to ask you the traditional final question on the New Books Network, which is, what are you working on now? <laughs> yeah, well, that's good. I mean, just, you know, just this morning, I've been trying to think through some of the objections to the book. Um, tried to explain, I tried to do it um, here on our show today. What, what does it mean to have an inalienable right? I, I had a very good question from a reader, critical reader who said, um, well, aren't, aren't, aren't rights, don't they connect or attach themselves to individual? Yet you say um, the rights are historical. I'm sorry, you say the rights are jurisdictional. So I have to do a better job of explaining what it means to have an individual, I'm sorry, an inalienable natural right. So I'm working on uh, natural rights theory. I'm also working on an article on the Establishment Clause. Um, the lawyers in the audience might be aware of this. Um, it's not clear right now that there's a doctrine guiding the Establishment Clause. Um, the Supreme Court over the last couple of years have said uh, all the old interpretations of the Establishment Clause are no longer valid. But what does the Establishment Clause prohibit? Um, we don't really know right now. So I've been hmm. trying to think through that. I mean, there's, uh, you can figure out what I have to say about that in the book. Um, uh, I, I do write about what um, my understanding of the historical meaning of the Establishment Clause is, uh, but I, I need to make that more applicable to our modern jurisprudence. So I'm working on both Free Exercise Clause and the Establishment Clause. Right well, now. I look forward to that because I learned a lot. And they, as you say, they're they're it's it's a it's a work in progress at the Supreme Court, and it's really fascinating. And with that, oh, and also I wanted to tell viewers that on, on that there are many interviews with you about the book and about religious, but other others of your books as well. And also, I want to urge them to visit the James Madison Program and American Ideals and Institutions website because you're you have an extensive series of lectures of, of sure, on sure. That that, yeah the madison program is at princeton and i was just lecturing there myself and then we have our program here at notre dame it's called the center for citizenship and constitutional government the website there is constudies.nd.edu uh, and lots of lectures on our website i'll say one other thing um, for any listener who's made it all the way to the end of the show, <laughs> Um, and I, I'll say I hope you've done a wonderful job. Your questions have just been fantastic. Uh, be happy, uh, you know, um, obviously you can get the book on Amazon or all sorts of places. Um, but for any listener who's made it this far into the show, if you want to purchase the book, just send me an email and uh, I can send you a signed copy. Uh, oh, that's that's very sweet. That's very nice. I, 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 I've got mine and of course I, I would be embarrassed to send it to you because it's so marked up. <laughs> it's just a, just a mess at this point. There's but, no uh, better compliment an author can have. To, to oh, well, I'd have to edit my own comments because I say no, no, no a couple of times. <laughs> but anyway, with that, I will just thank the scholar we've been talking to today, Vincent Philip Munoz, author of the 2022 book, Religious Liberty and the American Founding, Natural Rights and the Original Meanings of the First Amendment Religion Clauses, and thank you, listeners. Thanks, everyone. Bye-bye.